The following program contains topics describing graphic violence, strong sexual content, explicit language, and elements that may not be suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Where's your emergency? Uh, I need to report a murder. Okay, where is that, sir? 157 Redstone Drive in Warrington. 157? 167. Okay, can you tell me about what's going on there? Uh, mother and son, uh, bludgeoned to death. And you just found that? Yes. Okay, who are you? I am the husband. Did you do it? Yes, I did. What's your name, sir? Chris. Last name? Moyer. M-O-Y-E-R? Correct. What's your phone number, Chris? You're there now? Yes. Okay, 167 Redstone? Correct. Okay, are you sure they're dead? I am positive. Okay, are you still armed? Uh, no. Okay, I'll get somebody right out there for you, Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. Chris Moyer the lives of his wife, Irina Geller-Moyer, and their son, Dylan, in Warrington, Pennsylvania, one summer night in 2011. The events unfolded when Chris Moyer, in a shocking act, bludgeoned his wife and young son to death with a baseball bat as they peacefully slept. The crime scene revealed the seven-year-old boy in one bedroom and the lifeless body of the 39-year-old mother in the bathroom adjacent to the main bedroom. The unfolding horror continued when Moyer himself contacted the police, confessing to the murder of his family. Law enforcement quickly surrounded the Moyer residence on Redstone Drive, but by the time they arrived, Chris had already left the scene. Inside the house, the gruesome reality awaited them. The bodies of Irina and Dylan with a bloodied baseball bat nearby. The unfolding tragedy took an even darker turn as Moyer, determined to escape the consequences of his actions, sought his own demise. Three hours later, his lifeless body was discovered beside SEPTA train tracks in Hatborough, where he orchestrated his suicide by lying his head on the tracks, allowing a train to run through him. The mystery deepened as friends and family grappled with the unanswered question, why? Despite the police uncovering a typed note inside the Moyer home containing relatives' names and contact information, shedding light on possible financial difficulties, the true motives behind the brutal murders remain elusive. As investigators point to financial issues as a potential trigger, the family and community were left to grapple with the aftermath of a double murder-suicide that defied comprehension. In the end, the Bucks County District Attorney's Office acknowledging the absence of anyone to prosecute, were left with no choice and closed the case, leaving behind the echoes of a family destroyed by one man's devastating actions. Welcome to a world where darkness and mystery converge. Navigate the depths of horror and true crime and embark on a journey beyond the ordinary where everyday discussions, paranormal tales, and listener-submitted experiences blend into a realm of the unknown. In this dimension, 
Prepare to explore the uncharted, confront the sinister, and question the very fabric of reality. You have crossed into a place where the unusual becomes ordinary, and the terrifying is just the beginning. My name is Ralph Anthony, and welcome to the Scream Queer Podcast. Spotify's got a perfect platform that lets you create content, distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. It's simple, all in one place, and most importantly, it's free. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts anywhere, right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating now. Spotify for Podcasters lets you distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are available. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. So not only can you be heard, be seen. Take conversations with your fans and listeners to a a whole new level with Q&A and polls. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions where you can release subscription-only exclusive content, such as early releases and bonus episodes. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Scream Queer Podcast has been utilizing Spotify for Podcasters from the very beginning. I've had a blast doing it from the simple editing and crop audio feature to the cool sounds and interludes that can help take your show to the next level. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app now or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Lyle and Eric Menendez were born into a life of immense wealth and privilege. Their father, Jose Menendez, was a prominent entertainment executive, having held high-ranking positions at companies like RCA and Live Entertainment. Their mother, Kitty Menendez, was a dedicated homemaker responsible for maintaining their luxurious Beverly Hills mansion. The family lived in opulence, enjoying all the trappings of their wealth, which included expensive cars, vacations, and prestigious schools. From an outsider's perspective, they appeared to be living the American dream. On the night of August 20th, 1989, Lyle and Eric Menendez carried out the brutal murders of their parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez, in their Beverly Hills mansion. The method they chose was particularly gruesome and shocking. Armed with shotguns, they entered their parents' living room where their mother, Kitty, was watching television and their father, Jose, was nearby. The brothers proceeded to fire multiple shotgun blasts at point-blank range inflicting fatal injuries on both of their parents. The sheer violence of the attack was horrifying, leaving the victims with extensive wounds and causing significant damage to the room. Kitty Menendez suffered gunshot wounds to her face and arms, and Jose sustained gunshot wounds to the side of his head, chest, and arms. The crime scene was one of blood and destruction, bearing witness to the shocking violence that had occurred. After the murders, Lyle and Eric attempted to stage the crime scene to make it look like a home invasion, scattering shell casings and rearranging furniture. They then called 911 and reported the gruesome discovery of their parents' bodies. This attempt to mislead investigators initially cast doubt on their involvement in the murders. Initially, 
the Beverly Hills Police Department explored various theories regarding the perpetrators of the crime, including the possibility of organized crime involvement. They were baffled by the brutality of the murders and the apparent lack of motive. However, as investigators probed deeper, they uncovered evidence of the brothers' extravagant spending habits and suspicious behavior following the murders, which led to their eventual arrests. Lyle and Eric's defense during the trials hinged on their claims of enduring years of relentless emotional and physical abuse at the hands of their parents. Their defense argued that the murders were acts of self-defense, as they believed their lives were in grave danger. The brothers claimed that their father had been a tyrannical figure who subjected them to physical and emotional abuse from a young age. They alleged that Jose used belts, fists, and psychological torment as means of control and punishment. Their mother was accused of turning a blind eye to the abuse and sometimes participating in it. The abuse was described in detail during the trials. They argued that their parents had threatened to kill them if they ever revealed the abuse or attempted to leave the family. This fear, they claimed, drove them to commit the murders as a desperate act of self-preservation. The defense also dived into the complex family dynamics, describing a household filled with secrecy, control, and manipulation. They argued that the family presented a facade of happiness and success to the outside world, but concealed a deeply troubled and abusive environment within the walls of their luxurious Beverly Hills mansion. The Menendez brothers' claims of abuse formed the heart of their defense strategy as they sought to convince the jury that the murders were not premeditated acts of violence, but desperate responses to years of torment and trauma. The credibility of these claims, and whether they justified the brutal nature of the murders, became a central point of contention in the trials and the broader public debate surrounding the case. The brothers faced separate trials, both of which were highly publicized. The first trials, in 1993, resulted in hung juries for both brothers, with some jurors sympathizing with their claims of abuse and justification for their actions. This was a shocking outcome that highlighted the complexity of the case. However, in the retrials held in 1996, both brothers were found guilty of first-degree murder, they were subsequently sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In recent years, attorneys for Eric and Lyle Menendez have filed a habeas petition claiming that new evidence supports overturning their convictions and life sentences. In their original trials, the brothers admitted to the killings but argued that they acted in self-defense due to a history of severe abuse by their father. The new evidence includes a letter written by Eric to his cousin detailing his father's abuse and an allegation of sexual abuse by a former member of the Latin boy band Menudo, Roy Rossello, who claimed he was assaulted by Jose Menendez. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office is currently reviewing the habeas petition. Eric and Lyle Menendez are currently housed together at RJ Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. Hey everyone, I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Haley. We are two sisters and best friends, and we're the hosts of Real Talk About Feminism, a podcast for female empowerment. Each week, we release a new episode. We talk about everything from periods to current events. And different types of feminism to worse first dates. 
Subscribe on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts and tune in each week. Thanks for listening. and instances may be discussed due to limitations. For more information, check out The Woman and Me, published by Gallery Books and written by Britney Spears. Britney Jean Spears, born on December 2nd, 1981 in Macomb, Mississippi, rose to fame as a pop sensation in the late 1990s. Her journey in the entertainment industry has been marked by triumphs, controversies, and resilience. At the age of eight, Britney auditioned for Disney's The Mickey Mouse Club and secured a spot in the cast alongside Christina Aguilera and Justin Timberlake. Britney's journey continued to unfold with her participation in the Star Search television show at the age of 10, where she demonstrated her singing and dancing abilities. Her career later catapulted with her debut single, Baby One More Time in 1998, which quickly became a global phenomenon. The accompanying music video, featuring Britney in a schoolgirl outfit, left an indelible mark on pop culture. Her follow-up albums, including Oops I Did It Again and Britney, solidified her status as a pop princess. Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake shared a highly publicized relationship, the pair having shared mutual feelings for one another during their time as Mouseketeers on the Mickey Mouse Club in the early 90s, where their friendship blossomed into a romantic connection. The couple officially became an item in the late 1990s, capturing the attention of fans and the media alike. Their relationship was a prominent feature of the era's pop culture, as they attended events together, collaborated professionally, and became an iconic power couple in the music industry. In the year 2000, at the age of 19, Britney became pregnant while dating Justin. Despite her positive outlook on the unexpected pregnancy, Timberlake strongly advocated for them to end it citing their youth and unpreparedness for parenthood. Brittany reluctantly agreed to terminate the pregnancy, acknowledging that it was not a decision she would have made on her own. Reflecting on the experience, she expressed deep emotional pain and fear, describing it as one of the most agonizing moments in her life. She also recounts the moment she had to go through the traumatizing experience at home to keep the pregnancy a secret, recalling that she lied on the bathroom floor, in pain and in tears, as Justin sat beside her, singing and playing his guitar. Despite this difficult chapter, Brittany and Justin continued their relationship for another two years after the incident. The romance, however, came to an end in 2002, when Justin broke up with Brittany over text while on the set of the Overprotected Remix music video, marking a significant moment in both of their personal and professional lives. 
The breakup fueled media speculation and inspired creative works from both artists, including Timberlake's solo debut album, Justified, and Britney's introspective single, Every Time. In retrospect, Britney reflects on the challenging period in her relationship with Justin, noting his sudden standoffish behavior. She believes Timberlake exploited their relationship for his own gain, making it uncomfortable for him to show affection as he used her as material for his record. Spears feels exploited and exposed to the world. She admits to kissing choreographer Wade Robson during their relationship, attributing it to rumors of Timberlake's infidelity. Despite suspicions of cheating, Spears chose to overlook it due to her intense love. Meanwhile, Timberlake was seemingly carefree in Hollywood, casting a lookalike in his solo hit video, while Spears felt emotionally distant in Louisiana. Britney also unveils the harsh realities of fame, shedding light on the inappropriate and unnecessarily cruel nature of some of her most famous interviews. As her celebrity status soared, she became acutely aware of the stark contrast in the way she was questioned compared to her male counterparts, notably Justin Timberlake. In an infamous interview with Diane Sawyer, Britney found herself confronted with questions that delved into her emotions and actions, with Sawyer asking why she put Timberlake through so much pain. Britney's memoir candidly reflects her feelings of exploitation during this interview. The disparity in how she and Timberlake were scrutinized became glaringly evident. While he navigated questions about the breakup with a level of empathy, the tone directed at Britney seemed pointed and judgmental. After another commercial success with the In The Zone album released in 2003, this marked a significant chapter in her career. The album showcased her evolving musical style, blending pop, R&B, and dance elements. Hits like Toxic and Me Against the Music featuring Madonna garnered critical acclaim and commercial success, solidifying Britney's position as a pop innovator. The album's success was complemented by her electrifying performances, notably at the MTV Video Music Awards, where she kissed Madonna on stage. Concurrently, Britney's personal life became the focal point of tabloid speculation. Her high-profile relationships, including a brief marriage to childhood friend Jason Alexander in 2004, what she recalls as two friends having fun, found herself in hot water by her family, who criminalized her actions as if she had committed murder. Britney's relationship with Kevin Federline, a former backup dancer, was a headline-grabbing chapter in her personal life during the mid-2000s. The two met in 2004, and their whirlwind romance quickly led to marriage later that year. The union drew substantial media attention, and the couple's life together became a focal point of tabloid coverage. They had two sons, Sean Preston and Jaden James, born in 2005 and 6 respectively. Despite the initial public fascination with their relationship, it eventually faced challenges. Brittany and Kevin's marriage encountered strains, amplified by intense media scrutiny. The couple divorced in 2007. The divorce proceedings and the subsequent custody battle over their children added another layer of complexity to their public narrative. During this time, 
Brittany experienced a series of highly publicized incidents, including erratic behavior, concerns about her mental health, and a much publicized head shaving incident. The media's scrutiny surrounding her personal life reached a peak and her actions prompted legal intervention. In October 2007, a court commissioner ruled that Brittany would temporarily lose custody of her two sons, citing concerns about her parenting and the chaotic environment. Kevin Federline was granted full custody of the children. Brittany recounts the moment she shaved her head, a symbolic act that reverberated through the media and public consciousness. With her head shaved, she experienced a profound shift in how she was perceived, even by those closest to her. With my head shaved, everyone was scared of me, even my mom, she reflects in her candid expression of vulnerability. During the weeks that followed, characterized by her separation from her children, Brittany admits to grappling with a profound sense of loss and confusion. The emotional toll of severe postpartum depression, compounded by the abandonment from her husband and the death of her beloved aunt Sandra, created a perfect storm of anguish. In the absence of her children and under the relentless pressure of paparazzi, Brittany describes losing herself repeatedly. The weight of these simultaneous hardships led her into a state where as she bravely confesses, I didn't even really know how to take care of myself. The album Blackout marked a pivotal moment in Britney Spears' career, released on October 25th, 2007, amidst all of the personal struggles and media frenzy. The album displayed a departure from her earlier pop sound. Notable tracks include Give Me More and Peace of Me. The album's edgier electronic vibe was well-received critically, earning praise for its production and Spears' vocal delivery. Despite the challenging times in her life, Blackout is considered some of her best work by fans and Britney herself. Having been wanting her under a conservatorship as early as 2005, Britney's father and business manager Lou Taylor were in place and planning to make the move. In the year 2008, Britney's life took a turn that led to the establishment of the conservatorship following a highly publicized incident in January where Spears locked herself in the bathroom with her son Jaden. She was later admitted and analyzed for various psychological conditions. Spears was placed under a conservatorship in February 2008. This legal arrangement granted her father, Jamie Spears, control over her personal and financial affairs with the aim of managing her well-being and ensuring stability in her life. The conservatorship was initially deemed temporary, but it later evolved into a long-term arrangement. This decision was influenced by concerns about Britney's mental health and ability to make sound decisions at the time. The conservatorship granted her father significant authority over various aspects of her life, including her career, finances, and even personal relationships. When it started, I was extremely young. Um, I remember a lot of my friends texting me and calling me, and we were extremely close, and they wanted to see me, but by what had happened, um, I honestly still to this day don't know what really I did, but the punishment of... Uh, my father, I wasn't able to, you know, see anyone or like anything. Um, so, and you have to imagine none of it made sense to me. I 
literally spoke in a British accent to a doctor to prescribe my medication. And three days later, there was a swap team in my home, three helicopters. And I remember my mom's best friend and my two girlfriends. We had a sleepover the night before. They held me down on a gurner. And again, none of it made sense. Um, literally the extent of my madness was playing chess with, um, when it was playing chase with paparazzi, um, which is still to this day one of the most fun things I ever did about being famous. So I don't know what was so harmful about that. Um, but I remember my mom was sitting on the couch and she said, we've heard people are coming here today to talk to you. We should probably go, you know, to a hotel or something. And I never really understood what she meant. I didn't believe her. Like, is a lawyer coming here? Who is coming here? Then four hours later, there were over 200 paparazzi outside my house videotaping me through a window of an ambulance holding me down on a germer. I know now it was all premeditated. And a woman introduced the idea to my dad and my mom actually helped him follow through and made it all happen. It was all basically set up. There was no drugs in my system, no alcohol, nothing. It was pure abuse. And, and I haven't, haven't even really shared even half of it. I think the main thing I do remember when it started was my dad's control. He loved to control everything I did. I remember the first day he said, I'm Britney Spears and I'm calling the shots. And I'm like, alrighty then. Um, my brother was a football player. My dad was really, really hard on him when he was younger. Um, really abusive. And I think when my mom gave him the idea for the conservatorship and his friend, I think he just really like regrouped it and made such a really, really overhauling big deal out of it. And it was just really too much. I remember him always being in the office and um, my girlfriend was his assistant and they would just stay in there all day with the door shut and I was never if ever able to leave or go anywhere. My first job after the two weeks of being hospitalized and <laughs> completely traumatized out of my mind, um, I did a TV show called How I Met Your Mother and then I started working on an album um, called Circus um, and started working away right away. All I do remember is I had to do what I was told. Um, I was told I was fat every day. I had to go to the gym. I had to just, and um, I'd never remember feeling so demoralized and just, they made me feel like nothing. And I went along with it because I was scared. I was scared and fearful. I didn't even really do anything. And I had like a swap team and how, like none of it made sense to me. So, since that day, I did f probably four and a half tours. I did an album circus, um, Femme Fatale, Britney Jean, and Glory. And then I started doing a um, Vegas show in uh, Las Vegas. And I did that for four and a half years. Britney recalls key moments during this period of her life, stating that her father and conservator assumed control of even her deeply personal aspects, dictating her diet 
influencing decisions related to her birth control, and even placing restrictions on her consumption of coffee. In this deeply personal account, Spears paints a picture of a life tightly regulated where even the most basic personal choices were subject to external control. Perhaps most striking in Spears' revelation that despite her earnest pleas to the court for an alternative conservator, her father retained the role. She expressed a desperation for any alternative, even suggesting that anyone off the street would have been better. In contemplating what freedom from the conservatorship would mean for her, Britney Spears unveils a vision that extends far beyond the legal confines. For her, freedom is the ability to be goofy, silly, and have fun on social media. It means embracing mistakes as part of the human experience and learning from them without the heavy scrutiny that her public persona has attracted over the years. Freedom, in her words, liberates her from the obligation to perform for others, both on and off stage, allowing her to embrace imperfections and seek joy on her own terms. She also notes because she gave into the conservatorship, she was able to be reunited with her boys for playing by the rules. When Brittany found herself feeling isolated, with her father controlling everything and her mother seemingly compliant, she turned to her sister, Jamie Lynn, for support. However, her plea for help during a particularly challenging moment was met with unexpected indifference. Instead of the sisterly understanding she sought, Jamie Lynn advised her to stop fighting against the constraints of the conservatorship, leaving Spears feeling abandoned and vulnerable. Spears candidly shares her fears during this time, expressing a belief that her family might be actually trying to kill her. The realization that Jamie Lynn was not taking her side in the family struggle intensified Brittany's sense of betrayal, especially when she discovered that her sister was simultaneously capitalizing on the media attention surrounding her conservatorship. In a surprising turn of events, Jamie Lynn, instead of offering support, was writing a book that Spears describes as containing hurtful and outrageous stories. Despite the pain, Brittany expresses a hope for future reconciliation with Jamie Lynn as part of her healing journey. The singer acknowledges the enduring bond of sisterhood and acknowledges her ongoing struggle to balance compassion with the anger she feels towards those she perceives as having wronged her. After two world tours, a Las Vegas residency, an international tour, and an upcoming revamped residency, Brittany grew tired of being the puppet everyone wanted her to be. She refused to partake in the revamped residency after being promised a vacation with her boys, which had been taken away. In late 2018, Brittany began resisting the conservatorship, particularly her father's control. A doctor, prompted by the discovery of energy supplements, subjected her to psychological tests. After reportedly performing poorly, Jamie Spears sent her to a Beverly Hills rehab program, a move Spears interpreted as blackmail and gaslighting. Feeling they were trying to harm her, she, who had rarely opposed her father, defied him. Consequently, she was forcibly kept in rehab for months. Despite her pushback, her father escalated the situation by placing her in a $60,000 per month facility, threatening court embarrassment and aiming to make her appear like an idiot to the public if she resisted further. I do remember working and I got to a point where 
you know, because my pride in my 30s, I have to live under my father's rules. And, you know, the dancers are playing and drinking and having fun at nights in Vegas. And I couldn't do anything. And I remember just being like, my performances, I know, were horrible. Like, I even wore wigs and all the dancers were doing all these nice, sexy head flip turns. And I had conditioner treatment in my hair and like these little um, caps over my head and just during a whole show getting conditioner treatments just with wigs on because I was just like a robot honestly I just I didn't give a fuck anymore because I couldn't go where I wanted to go I couldn't have the nannies that I wanted to have I couldn't have cash um and it was just demoralizing so I was kind of like in this conspiracy thing of people claiming and like treating me like a superstar but yet they treated me like nothing Well, for some reason, um, I started to get a spark back. I remember recording Glory, and for some reason, I think producing and making music, and I went to this little Spanish house, and I got the fire back in my eyes for some reason, and um, it was at the end of recording Glory, and um, my son named it, and uh, things started kind of taking a turn because I started getting more confidence just for myself. And I think with confidence, um, people kind of like, oh, wait, 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 what's going on now? They literally killed me. They threw me away. That's what I, f I felt like my family threw me away. I was performing for like thousands of people at night in Vegas. The rush of being a performer, the laughter, the joy, the respect. I was shaking over 40 people's hands every night before a show, training weekly, three training sessions a week, AA meetings, therapy sessions. I, my dad literally, <clears throat> I was a machine. I was a fucking machine, not even human almost. It, it was insane how hard I worked. And the one time I speak up and say no in the rehearsals to a fucking dance move, they got pissed. I feel like the scare tactic and how badly they treated me in the end. I think they thought I was going to come begging back to work again because I was, they thought, you know, I needed them. Um, cause they, they did, they put me in an ignorant, scared state of mind to make me feel like I needed them. And if you don't, um, do what we say, we're going to show you who's boss. I didn't play their game anymore. While in rehab, Britney Spears discovered the Free Britney movement fighting for her freedom, describing it as the most amazing thing she'd ever seen. However, her time in rehab was marked by strict restrictions, including no outdoor activities, driving, privacy, or private bathing. She had to give blood weekly, limited TV to one hour before 9pm, and felt isolated from the outside world. Learning about the movement through a nurse provided a connection to the support she was receiving. In the hospital, Brittany was transitioned from Prozac to lithium, leaving her lethargic and disoriented. The experience, coupled with feelings of abandonment during her confinement, left her questioning if she was already dead. After two months in the facility, she found herself unafraid but expressed that this lack of fear didn't make her feel strong. Instead, it evoked a sense of sadness. In another revelation from her memoir, Brittany disclosed that her paternal grandmother, Emma Jean Spears, 
faced repeated institutionalization at the hands of Spears' paternal grandfather, a disconcerting parallel following the heartbreak loss of their three-day-old baby, Emma Jean was consumed by grief and profound sadness. During her time in the asylum, she was administered lithium, but the anguish proved unbearable. Emma Jean eventually visited her child's gravesite with a shotgun and tragically shot herself. In 2019, Brittany initiated a legal challenge against her father, aiming to alter the dynamics of the conservatorship. Brittany, for the first time, actively sought changes in the legal arrangement that had been in place for over a decade. Her legal team filed to have Jamie Spears removed as a conservator, indicating a desire for more autonomy and control over her personal and financial affairs. Around the same time, reports emerged about an incident involving her father and son, Sean Preston. Allegedly, her father was involved in a physical altercation with Sean Preston during a visit. The incident raised concerns. While it wasn't directly linked to the legal proceedings, the reported altercation between Britney's father and Sean Preston contributed to the intensification of public interest in the conservatorship case. Critics and supporters alike raised questions about the effectiveness and appropriateness of the conservatorship. Considering the alleged impact on Britney's family relationships, this incident served as a backdrop to the evolving narrative of Britney's legal battles and further fueled discussions about the need for re-evaluation and potential reform of conservatorship systems. In November 2020, the Bessemer Trust Company was appointed as a co-conservator alongside Britney's father. This move was significant because it introduced an independent financial institution to oversee Britney's financial affairs within the conservatorship. In a pivotal court hearing on June 23, 2021, Britney directly addressed the court, speaking out. This marked a rare occasion where Britney shared her perspective on the legal arrangement and its impact on her life. During her emotional and candid testimony, Brittany expressed a desire to end the conservatorship, describing it as abusive and revealing details about the control exerted over various aspects of her life, including her career, personal decisions, and reproductive rights. Brittany's testimony shed light on the restrictive nature of the conservatorship, her struggles with being denied basic freedoms and the toll it had taken on her mental and emotional well-being. Her words resonated widely and fueled public outcry and support for her freedom. In the wake of Britney's testimony and the growing Free Britney movement, Bessemer Trust and co-conservator alongside Britney's father filed a request to withdraw from its role. Fans in the Free Britney movement worked tirelessly, analyzing Britney's online post for signs she needed help. Documentaries on major streaming platforms fueled their cause, but Britney found it challenging to balance feeling supported and exposed, especially since none of the documentaries involved her. She expressed hurt over her friends speaking to filmmakers without consulting her, and the constant stream of documentaries felt overwhelming. Despite her attempts to share her story, such as mentioning the conservatorship back in a 2016 talk show interview that never aired, Britney felt controlled and viewed by her father as a means to generate financial gain. Eventually, Britney's father and the primary conservator filed a petition in September 2021 to terminate the conservatorship. 
this was a surprising turn of events, as her father had been a central figure in the conservatorship for years. His petition aligned with Britney's expressed desire to bring the legal arrangement to an end. In a landmark decision on November 2021, the court officially terminated Britney Spears' conservatorship. This marked a significant victory for Britney and her supporters, concluding a legal battle that had spanned 13 years. The termination allowed Britney to regain control over her personal and financial affairs, signifying a new chapter in her life. She regained the freedom to make decisions without external interference, celebrating small victories like buying an iPad. She faced public expectations for new music. However, she expressed her music was something that had been taken from her. She loved her music, and this whole situation crushed all of that. Despite releasing albums and a Las Vegas residency during the conservatorship, her creative and artistic voice was silenced. Britney felt restricted from performing her favorite songs and believed her performances were manipulated to embarrass her rather than showcase her best to fans. Now free, her focus has shifted to self-discovery rather than meeting others' expectations. In her memoir, Britney provides a glimpse into her current life, emphasizing her focus on enjoying vacations, jet skiing, and being kind to herself. She listens to music daily, finds joy in singing, and values alone time, noting a decreased passion for live performances. Elton John's invitation to collaborate on Hold Me Closer reignited her interest in recording, marking an emotional and exciting experience for her. The question of returning to live shows remains uncertain, as Britney acknowledges ongoing soul-searching. She expresses love for playing dress-up on Instagram, highlighting her journey of self-exploration and enjoyment of simple pleasures. I got on my knees every day and I prayed. I held on like a needle and thread to some sort of existence because they had made me feel like nothing for so long. I knew in the deepest, deepest part of my core, I knew I'd done nothing wrong and I didn't deserve the way I'd been treated. In closing... If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Help get this episode out to Brittany herself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But just know I always strive for fives. Also, if you have questions, a scary experience, or an encounter with the paranormal, make sure to submit your entries to screamqueercast at gmail.com or you can send me a DM on Instagram at ScreamQueerPodcast. All entries remain anonymous. Remember to show empathy and understanding to one another, something I'm working to be better at every day. And until next time, I'll scare you all on the next episode. Bye.